So last Sunday we looked through, hopefully not too tediously, what we called the historical validity of the Bible. And we established that if you compare it with other historical documents which are accepted generally as true and accurate and valid, that in fact the, the Bible that we have is better attested there are far more copies of it to check its validity. It can be dated way closer to the actual original events. And historically speaking, it can be considered top class in historical validity. It can even stand in a court of law as legally valid source of eyewitness documents verifying the truth of what it's saying. We have reliable and believable people who tell us what they actually saw. And we can be totally confident that we have an accurate retelling of what they actually saw. And so today for a while I'm going to think about something which uh, Dr. Gary Habermas talked about. He's got a presentation called the resurrection evidence that changed current scholarship. And what's he mean by current scholarship? It means, you know, the people who make a living out of doing this, studying old ancient texts, what's their opinion? What do they accept as true and accurate here? And everyone in that field has a core of texts and facts which they all accept as reliable. One of them, E.P. Sanders, says that scholars agree that after his death, Jesus appeared to his disciples. They can't deny it. But he goes on to say, as to how he appeared, I'm not prepared to say. Hmm. Skeptics would say that. But the consensus is that after his death, Jesus appeared to his disciples, you can't deny that. And did you know that even sceptical critics will use the New Testament? They might only let you use six of or seven of Paul's letters, but they are happy with six or seven of the letters of Paul to call them authentic letters, authentic epistles. And what do they base that on? Well, they say Paul, he's, he's a known quantity. He's a scholar, and he's a scholar who changed his mind on the basis of evidence. He knew the right people at the right time of history. He knew the brothers and the disciples of Jesus, personally knew them. And what's more, he's not a flaky guy because he was a leader of his people before he became a Christian, and he was a religious scholar as well. He's an honest writer. He knows the sources. You really have to have a reason if you're going to disbelieve what Paul says. And so even the sceptical people will give you Romans, they'll give you 1 and 2 Corinthians, they'll give you Galatians, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians and Philemon. So out of all that core, I'm going to take just two things. And the first is a sort of what we would call a creedal type of statement. It, it's like an agreed way of expressing. It's a, it's a carefully devised form of the gospel message. 
which the Apostle Paul received. And that's in 1 Corinthians 15.3 and, and we'll also consider Galatians chapter 1 and into chapter 2. So we'll get to those in a minute. So we start with 1 Corinthians, written, we believe, at 55 to 58 AD, about 25 years after the crucifixion. And that's generally considered to have been written before the Gospels were written. And so we have that in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, for I, what I received is received something. What I've received, I've passed on to you of first importance. And so after that comes what we would call a type of creed. And this is what it is. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas which is the Greek name for Peter, and then to 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also. So what's Paul passing on here? A short creedal statement it's a carefully prepared and agreed upon way of expressing the gospel message and he's received it he didn't make it up himself and once you're alert to this there's actually quite a few creeds or sayings in the new testament uh, which go back to the 30s ad you know things like have you not heard and so now brothers and sisters I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. So Paul's here saying that he's come to Corinth before. And when did he come? It's actually one of the most easily identified dates in the New Testament, 51 to 52 AD. We know this because of the name of the leader of Corinth, who was a Greek guy who only ever had a reign of one year and they found his name actually inscribed in stone. So we know that Paul had come to Corinth 51 to 52 AD and he passed on at that stage what he was given. Well, what, when, where and from whom? Is this one here where it says, I pass on to you as of first importance. So where's it going to come from? Well, even the sceptics will agree that Paul got that information from back in 35 AD. This is the maths. You start with the cross. When did Paul become a Christian? Most popular view is about two or three years later. That Paul, so we've got two or three years. And what happened after he, after he met the Lord? And we have to go to Galatians 1 to see this. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that's when he met the Lord, so that I may preach him amongst the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human beings. I didn't go up to Jerusalem, to be, wouldn't have got a good reception at that point. Didn't go up to Jerusalem to see those apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. 
And later I returned to Damascus, and then after three years, so we've got to add on three years now, when he went on an extended spiritual retreat into Arabia, came back to Jerusalem. After those three years, after the three years, what did he do? I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him for 15 days. It's a decent enough amount of time to have a really good sorting stuff out, isn't it? And I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. And so if you put those figures together, you've got Paul receives that creedal statement about five years after the crucifixion. And, and who was he talking to to get the information? He was talking to the top dogs. He was talking to the Apostle Peter and the leader of the Jerusalem church then, James, the brother of the Lord. Now there's an interesting word here when it says, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas. With Cephas. To get acquainted. That's a one word in Greek, hysteresi. And it means to visit for information. So Paul spends two weeks, 15 days, not for casual conversation over lattes, but to do the work of a hysteresi, a reporter, really, an investigator. Rather, it's like an eyewitness reporter who goes out into the field to see for himself what's really going on there. And then we continue with the story. Then after 14 years... I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, and I took Titus along also. And uh, interesting little snippet here, I went in response to a revelation. You know, I think God knew that one day we'd be sitting in muck and burden and we'd need some historical proof. Or we'd need as much proof as possible to back up the message. So he's gone back, went in response to a revelation, and he meets privately with those esteemed as leaders and presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles because I wanted to be sure. So he's taking what he's been preaching, he's bringing it back to be checked. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running the race in vain. He put on the table what he'd been doing. He wanted to make sure that he had it right. And who's he checking with at this stage? James, Peter and John, those esteemed as pillars. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognised the grace given to me. I mean, who was any bigger in the church than these guys? Nobody. No higher authority than Peter, James, the brother of the Lord and John. And 14 years later, they're checking on his message to see if it's the same. The message he received partly directly from an encounter with the Lord, and then he's got his three years sabbatical in Arabia. He's got a 15-day meeting with three of the big four about five years after the resurrection. And you can't get any closer to the source of the correct information. I mean, who of us wouldn't like to slide it up to Peter and John and James and say, well, what really went on, mate? And what did he find out? What were his findings at that point? They added nothing to the message. And so Paul has met with the big three, Peter, James and John, for a research chat. And I'm sure there was very many wide-ranging discussions 
But the question is, what did he receive, which looks to us like a, a creed. And why do we say it is like a creedal statement? Because those people who know Greek really well say that in the Greek it's sort of got a rhythm to it. As though it's been particularly composed to make it memorable. And the sort of equivalent for us is the words in a song are arranged quite deliberately to tell you a thing, but they have a rhythm and a feel about them. And it takes a while to do that, to take the information of what's gone on and put it in really a very memorable and concise form like this. And the apostles already had it when Paul first visited them, which means it's even closer to the actual events themselves. And historically, you cannot get any closer means that what's in the creed that we receive today is undeniably accurate. It had no time at all to develop into a Chinese whisper. And one of the researchers, James G.D. Dunn, will say, the latest that creed could have been put together is just six months after the cross. Well, how does that resurrection that it talks about in there, how does that feature in Paul's ministry? How important is it to the things he does? I think it's the heart of it. He considers that the resurrection is a core doctrine. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. And it's not just Paul, but the resurrection of believers is mentioned over 20 times in the New Testament. And the resurrection is meant to be an inspiration for us. An inspiration for us to stand firm in our beliefs. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. If you're worried about what's going on in the world at the moment, read that a few times a day. Let nothing move you. Stand firm because of the resurrection. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Nothing you do in the Lord is ever wasted. And Paul is so captured with the reality of the resurrection of Jesus that he actually goes in and starts taunting death. He says, where, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Now he's not being silly, he knows he can get hurt. He's got a long list of times when he was hurt. The resurrection so motivates him that he's totally convinced of it. And he's living in what some people have called the already but not yet. The already but not yet. Because he's totally convinced that the strongest force in the universe, death, has been conquered. It's not here yet. But the basis has already been done. And this belief in the resurrection is the difference. This is the difference if Christ really has been raised from the dead or not. That death has been defeated. And eternity has been ushered in for those who respond rightly to Christ. And then think about the impact of the resurrection for the start of Christianity. You've got a new religion that starts off, it ends up travelling all around the world. If it wasn't true, 
it wouldn't have got off the ground, would it? People would have said, you're crazy, and moved on. And some scholars believe that Christianity just wouldn't have got going, wouldn't have survived if it didn't have two doctrines at the very beginning, a high Christology, in other words, the guy who died on the cross was actually God, and the resurrection. And you put together death, resurrection, and the deity of Jesus, what have you got? That's the gospel. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, the gospel, that Christ died for our sins. There's the death. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, there's a resurrection proved by the fact that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve and after this he appeared to more than 500. So I've got now a couple of just little bonus things for us. When thinking about that truth of the resurrection, what about the undisturbed grave clothes? So John talks about this and it says, Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. He saw something as he went into the tomb, which led to him believing. And because they didn't, still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So John races in there, he beats Peter to the tomb, but you know, Peter's bolder, so Peter gets there and walks in first. John eventually goes in and sees something so startling that he immediately believes that Jesus has risen from the dead. And it's these grave clothes in the form of a body slightly caved in and empty. It's like looking at the empty chrysalis of a caterpillar's cocoon. You see, that wrapping virtually undisturbed. The head cloth is still lying in its place. And the only explanation for how that body got out of there was that it supernaturally resurrected. If someone had come in as they maintain and stole the body, they were either taken everything, including the grave clothes, or they'd have unwrapped him and left the clothes. And consider, he would have had some preparation for burial. One of the things they used was myrrh, which is very sticky and it stuck all the stuff together. If they'd unwrapped it, there'd be a great mess. And yet, no mess. Consider this other thing, the explanation of the stolen body. The Roman guards, they were uh, very professional and the army was very strict. If you didn't fulfil your duties, you could quite likely be killed. And so they lost the body, scared to death. Who did they go to? They went to the Sanhedrin and then the Sanhedrin gave them a story which they said, we'll take that one because it means we won't get executed. And the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while you were asleep. 
and we'll be we'll back you up, buddies. If this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Well, that explanation kept the soldiers alive. But it didn't disprove the truth either, really, because they couldn't point to a body still in the grave. Which, you see, was in those days, that was a standard way of disproving a messiah. Messiahs, you see, from time to time popped up in those days, as they do these days, and the Romans dealt with them quite effectively. They executed them, and you could go and see the body if you didn't believe it. Disproved that they were the actual messiah. But no previous messiahs had done what Jesus did here. The Romans and the Sanhedrins, they couldn't disprove the Messiah by, here's the body, boys, which is a top-grade point in favour of the resurrection being true because the facts and the information match the description, the storyline. We've got one more. Naturalistic presuppositions. You know, some people have problems with miracles. One of the arguments against the resurrection for these guys is what's called naturalistic presuppositions. They say only what's naturally possible is possible. Genuine miracles, no, they can't occur because they'd have to violate natural laws. So, for example, if you want to step off a tall building, you can't avoid the law of gravity. And if you want to enter a room, usually you have to come in through the door or the window. You can't do what Jesus did and just appear in a room. And the argument says it's just supremely stupid to consider something physically impossible like a resurrection. You'd have to break the normal laws of the universe to make it happen. Well, let's give an illustration about that. Consider this. Suppose I'm storing my leftover money in my office bottom drawer. Put in 10 bucks one week. Next week I come in, put in 20 bucks. Third week I come in, I put 30 bucks in. And the fourth week, oh, gee, I need to get something, I'll go and check my money. You go and you reach for your 60 bucks, and there's only 15 bucks in there. Have the natural laws of arithmetic been broken because my 60 bucks is now only 15 bucks? Does the fact that there's now obviously missing money invalidate the laws of arithmetic? And if you have a natural presupposition, you're going to say, ooh, got to work pretty hard here. Oh, maybe the money fell down the back. Maybe it's got stuck to the bottom or something. And, and then your imagination takes off and over you go. You can come up with any reason for why it's not there. But the blindingly obvious conclusion is that some force outside of the drawer acted on the drawer. Somebody nicked the money. And just because the laws of arithmetic can't explain why 60 bucks has become 15 bucks doesn't mean the laws of arithmetic are broken. And accordingly, the resurrection can't be denied because it doesn't normally happen. If something outside the normal system intervenes, then it's totally reasonable. So the blindingly obvious explanation, the only explanation which explains all the facts, is that God, from outside the system, raised Jesus from the dead. 
just an explanation worth believing and not wiped out by naturalistic presuppositions. And I was interested as I was doing my research for this that God has been raising up many very sharp and well-prepared Christian apologists over the last 20 or 30 years. And there really is a wonderful amount of information uh, available for us. More than any other religion, people have been studying how to explain the truth of Christianity. And so I say, go have, go have a look. And, and I talk about this thing, so you've got some things that you can have in your mind for when you talk about others with this. But despite the information being correct, we have to acknowledge an important fact. People believe what they want to believe, don't they? People believe what they want to believe. And just don't think that just because you do have an answer for every one of their questions that they'll immediately become Christians. And don't think that the best thing you need to do in your life is have reasons for every explanation. And don't think that they have to have it. They have to know it all, or you have to know it all. The point of all this is, it's about meeting the resurrected Jesus, isn't it? Think about this. There's this, let's have this story from John chapter 20. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot, and they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. And at this she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realise it was Jesus. And he asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? And thinking it's the gardener, she says, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where they've put him and I'll get him. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned to him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. The point of all this talking about the resurrection is to notice Jesus, who is standing there right beside you. And what difference does it make if you recognise Jesus who's standing right there beside you? Well, if the resurrection validates Jesus' message, it means you have to consider that message, which has been said already. John 14:6, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And the resurrection means that the Christ who said these words is alive. Acts 4, 11 and 12. Jesus is the Messiah. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name in all of heaven for people to call upon to save them. He is living today. The most logical response is to trust Jesus with your life and to experience the personal transformation that only he can effect. It's logical to trust that he can forgive your rebellious desire to do things on your own. He can forgive your desire to continue with your sinful habits, 
your desire to keep chasing counterfeit sources, trying to do life your own way, ignoring the Creator's operational manual, the most sensible thing to do is to trust Him. When He says to us, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just, and He will forgive us our sins and, hallelujah, purify us from all unrighteousness. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. Has eternal life. And will not be judged. But here's the resurrection now. that has crossed over from death to life. And so no matter what these sceptical people say, Jesus just changed lives, millions of lives, over 20 centuries. I'll give you one example. Is that fellow who was a drunk, become a Christian, knew what it was like to be a drunk. And someone said to him one day, said, mate, your religion is just a delusion. He thought about it a bit and he said, well, thank God for the delusion. Thank God for the delusion. It's put clothes on my children and shoes on their feet and bread in their mouths. It's made a man of me. It's put joy and peace in my home, which had been hell. If this is a delusion, then may God send it to the slaves of drink everywhere. For their slavery is an awful reality. I read of an encounter in a university lecture room years ago. And the, the essence of it was that the university student, in a lecture situation, the professor's been ranting against Christianity. So he stands up and he says to the lecturer, he says, mate, if I get to the end of my life believing what I believe and am wrong, what have I lost? If you get to the end of your life believing what you believe and are wrong, what have you lost? So in other words, if after living a life for Jesus, which has given me a strong family, clear boundaries, behaviour in line with biblical principles, immense inner peace, honest business practices, moral behaviour. If after living that life I get to the end of life and there's no heaven, what have I lost? Nothing. And if you, after living a life denying the existence of a creator, indulging whatever appetites and lusts you wish, chasing money, sex and power, and you get to the end of your life and you find that there is only one name, by which you can be saved, what have you lost? Everything. Let's pray. <clears throat> we pause worshipfully before a resurrected God, a living God, who is in every Christian in this room and whose presence is here right now. My prayer this morning, Lord, is that like Mary at the tomb, that we'll all look around for Jesus and see him and recognise that he's been standing alongside us always. My prayer is that we'll then say, Master. That we'll respond to the nudging of the Holy Spirit in our spirit and say, yes, Jesus. You came back to life to meet us this day. 
And if we haven't met you yet, all we need to do is look for you and ask forgiveness for trying to do life without you and determine that from now on you're going to live for him and you're going to invite him in to the mess which is your life. That you'll be your leader and your guide and your companion and your strength from now on to be the resurrected Lord in our life. Amen.